You're listening to TIP. Skilled managers don't benefit investors, but they benefit themselves by having a greater capacity to manage assets, which of course they're charging, they're charging fees on. So even if you can find a skilled manager, I guess the trick is investing in them before everybody else realizes that they're skilled, which makes it even more challenging to execute. On today's show, I bring back fan favorite and one of my favorites, Ben Felix, for the third time. And this time we talk about Peter Thiel's $5 billion Roth IRA, endowment funds, endowment models, and David Swenson, how to navigate through and invest in high dividend yielding stocks, ETFs, NFTs, and a bunch more. Ben Felix is a portfolio manager at PWL Capital and host of the Common Sense Investing YouTube channel and the Rational Reminder podcast. As always, I really enjoy this conversation with Ben, and I'm sure you guys will too. Let's dive in. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And today, I have a guest with me who is one of the very few guests that has been on the show now three times. And I'm sure there are going to be more to come. Welcome back to the show, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's good to be back here. I highly recommend everyone listening to this episode goes back and listens to your previous two episodes, which were episode 54 and 77. But for those who haven't heard those episodes yet, give us a quick rundown on your background and who you are. Sure. So I'm a portfolio manager at a wealth management firm up in Canada called PWL Capital. I've also got a YouTube channel. Started out as kind of separate from my job, but it's morphed over time into being something that I actually do as part of my job, which I, we talked about on one of the past episodes that I did with you. So yeah, I've got a YouTube channel, I've got a podcast, and I manage wealth for a whole bunch of Canadian families. When you first get into investing, most people follow the quote-unquote famous investors, some of who are famous for good reason and deserve following, maybe like Buffett, while others might not be so worth following. And then as you get a bit more seasoned with investing, your philosophy on who to follow changes a bit. At least that was kind of the journey that I went through. And I originally followed guys like Buffett and Ackman and others like them in hopes to get to the next hot stock tip. That's really all I was looking for was I just wanted the next hot stock. And today I still follow those guys, Buffett and and people like him, of course, but I've also learned that I prefer to follow people that have a great way of thinking rather than just looking for a stock tip. And I've also learned that a lot of times those people aren't always the most popular or famous, and that led me to you. I really enjoy the way you think and explain things, which has always led to our conversations and episodes covering a really wide range of topics. And today, I think the conversation is going to be no different. So let's start out with a news story that recently broke that I personally think is fascinating. And it's about Peter Thiel's $5 billion IRA. For those who don't know, give us a quick overview of just what a Roth IRA is, and then walk us through a little bit about Thiel's situation and kind of how that came about. Sure. I'm definitely not the best person to give the nitty gritty on how Roth IRA works because I'm in Canada. So we have a TFSA, which is very similar, a tax-free savings account. You can actually talk broadly about these accounts because many countries have them. 
So the tax-free account, which is the umbrella that these would fall under, they're accounts where you contribute with after-tax dollars. And when you withdraw in the future, you're not taxed on the withdrawal. And that's as opposed to a tax-deferred account where you contribute with pre-tax dollars and you're taxed on your eventual withdrawals. Anyway, so you get contribution room, you make a contribution with after-tax dollars, and by doing that, you use up some of your contribution room. The Peter Thiel story is interesting, of course, because he has this massive tax-free account. I mentioned that after-tax dollars go in and you're not taxed on future withdrawals. So if you get really big wins, and especially multiple big wins inside of that tax-free account, you can end up with a huge tax-free pile of money. And that happened in this case. I think the problem with any individual investors getting too excited about this idea is that those outcomes, like the Peter Thiel outcome, those don't happen very often. So it's true. It is a fact that if you put money inside of your Roth IRA or your tax-free savings account, if you're in Canada, and you make massive returns, you can end up with this big pile of tax-free wealth. But the chances of getting that many compounding big, huge, huge wins. I mean, we're not talking about a 100% return here. These are serious returns that, that in Peter Thiel's case, he got from investing in companies before they were public. And that's not illegal. It's not insider trading or anything like that. But it takes a certain amount of conviction, and I would say a certain amount of luck to get the kind of outcome that he's gotten. Is it possible for an individual, someone listening to this podcast, to recreate that experience by picking stocks or picking pre-IPO stocks? It's possible, but there's this issue called skewness. Not an issue. It's a statistical term called skewness in the stock market, in anything, I guess. But in the stock market, the way the skewness works is that a few companies are responsible for most of the positive return in the market, and most companies actually don't do so well. So if you can pick those few companies that do really well and do so consistently, with money inside of a tax-free account, you can accrue significant amounts of tax-free wealth. But the chances of doing that are really low because most companies don't do very well. Now, in this specific case where we have a $5 billion tax-free account, that wasn't happening in the public market. It was happening with private companies. The skewness in... like If we take venture capital as an example, the skewness in venture capital is even more extreme than in the stock market. So again, the probability of recreating this experience gets even lower. Now, if it were free to do this, if it were risk-free to do it, maybe it's like, hey, it's a lottery ticket. Maybe you go for it. But the big problem is with these tax-free accounts, when you make a contribution, you use up your room. If you make a contribution and you invest in some highly speculative thing because you want to recreate the $5 billion Roth IRA experience and you lose the money instead of making the crazy multiple returns, that's it. The room's gone. You make a contribution, invest in something that goes to zero, you can no longer use that contribution room ever. And keeping in mind the skewness in stock returns or even more so in private investment returns, your chances of evaporating your tax-free room are much greater than your chances of creating a massive pile of tax-free wealth. And then there's one other issue. And this is actually one of my very first YouTube videos. My, my earliest YouTube videos was talking about exactly this for the tax-free savings account in Canada. The other issue is that both in Canada and in the US, if you have a capital loss in a taxable investment account, so if you invest in something and then sell it later for less than you paid for it in general terms, then you get a capital loss, which you can use to offset a capital gain. Or it may, may be slightly different in the US where, where you may be able to offset other income too. I'm not sure. But either way, you can offset capital gains with capital losses. So by 
having losses in your tax-free account, you again, you lose that. So not only are you potentially evaporating your room, you're also potentially giving up the opportunity to have capital losses, which you can use to offset future or current capital gains. And again, I come back to the skewness issue. You're much more likely to have losses if you're doing speculative investments than you are to have wins. So my view on this is that I would save your tax-free room for your safer, more diversified investments where you actually expect a long-term return and do your speculative stuff in a taxable account where because you're more likely to lose, you're at least going to be able to use those losses to offset capital gains. The other piece to this or nuance is that Peter Thiel, because some people are probably wondering, how did Thiel use a Roth IRA to invest in private companies? When I go into my Roth IRA, all I could do is invest in public companies. So the piece here, a little bit of nuance is that Thiel used what's called a self-directed IRA. It's a form of a Roth IRA. And what you're allowed to do with a self-directed IRA is it allows you to then invest in a ton of different alternative assets. You can invest in cryptocurrency, real estate, you can put it in private companies, you can put it also in the public markets. But basically, you have a lot more flexibility in terms of what you can invest in. And we actually just did a full two-part series all about self-directed IRAs on the August 2nd and August 9th episode. So those are episodes 81 and 82. If you're really interested in this idea of the nuances of the accounts themselves, the legalities and all that information, we also talked about Peter Thiel a little bit. Go and check out those episodes. You talked about your opinion in terms of the strategy for where to allocate risky investments, but I'm curious to hear from a tax perspective what your opinion is on Teal's approach. Some people think that it was brilliant and that, hey, he has the tax code. This is the way it's written. It's fine that he did this. Other people think it was a little bit unethical. So where do you fall, do you think, on Teal's strategy? Well, the laws are what they are, and he used them to his advantage. Is that unethical? I don't know if I can make that judgment. Should the rules change? Yeah, maybe. I mean, if it's relatively easy for someone with significant wealth to recreate what he's been able to do, I don't know how true that is. I mean, there's, we talked about skewness, we talked about luck. I don't know if anybody can just decide that they're going to recreate this experience. But to the extent that it's possible and that it's a huge advantage to somebody with wealth, I can see an argument for that. For that needing to change. But again, I don't know if I'm in a position to make the judgment on the ethics of what he was able to accomplish. If anybody listening is familiar with Berkshire Hathaway and kind of the potential investment gurus that Buffett has brought into Berkshire Hathaway, they're Ted and Todd. And Ted, the half of Ted and Todd, Ted Welsher, has an account just like Teal. It's not worth billions. It's actually worth a little over 200 million, roughly 250 million. And Ted has said, listen, should the rules be changed? Probably. Guys like me probably shouldn't be able to do this, but I am able to. So why wouldn't I do this? And so there's an argument to be said as to whether things should be changed in the future and how you should look at it now. But I always find it interesting to think about that dynamic. I think it's a judgment that everybody's got to make on. I mean, should the laws changing, that's a consensus decision to an extent. Dealing with clients, like there are things in the Canadian tax code that you can do to save tax, and they're not by any means aggressive tax planning or illegal or anything like that. But there are things that you can do. And in many cases, probably a minority, but in many cases, I will have a conversation with a client about, you know, hey, we can set this thing up and it'll reduce your tax bill. And sometimes people say, you know what, I'm actually okay with paying the tax because it feels like the right thing to do. In a lot of ways, it's a judgment that people have to make on their own within the laws that are in place. 
I think one of the viewpoints that comes into play here for a lot of people that think it's unethical is that they think that it's not possible for them or that they don't have access to it when technically speaking, they do have access. Anybody can open an SDIRA. Anybody can op- and invest in pre-IPO companies. Now, could you get access to Facebook and PayPal like Teal did? Probably not. So there's a debate there. But I think a lot of times the confusion or opinions are based on this idea of not having access like these guys do. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case. So that gets interesting because if we forget about the tax stuff for a second and just think about access to deals, to the best deals, that is, I think, pretty restricted to a relatively small subset of people, of the top VC firms and maybe the top people like Teal. So that's then take it back to the tax conversation and the access conversation. It's very possibly true that this isn't something that's accessible to the average person because you're right. Most people couldn't access Facebook pre-IPO. Any company that's a, a unicorn like that and that everybody kind of knows is going to have a big pop on IPO, those are really hard to access. And there's actually some interesting research on this too. We, we talked about IPOs in a previous conversation that you and I had, but there's adverse selection in IPO allocations. If you can get access to, an IP, to a pre-IPO allocation, it's probably not one that you want access to because the access goes to the people that generate the most revenue or the investment bank or its related businesses. It's not easy to get access to those deals. So again, we come back to skewness. And if we come to the evidence on VC investing for a second, there is evidence of persistence in VC fund managers. Like you take stocks, you take even private equity, there's not a whole lot of evidence of persistence. That means that the best managers over a period of time don't tend to be the best managers over a future period of time. But VC is one area where there is actually evidence of persistence. And probably it's because of deal flow, because the best VCs get access to the best deals. But that also means that everybody else doesn't get access to those deals. And even with the VC, with the best VC funds, one of the other issues is they still have a limited amount of capacity. So if you have access to the best VC fund, you're probably not going to get as big of an allocation as you want, even if you have access. And most people don't. Most people, they want to answer your call. But if you happen to be somebody that does have access to the best VC fund managers and they take your money, it's probably not going to be as big of an allocation as you wished. And for the people that get access to that type of investment opportunity, it's probably not even going to be enough to move the needle in terms of that person's wealth. So to your point about fairness and why this is seen as an issue, it may be possible for anybody to open a self-directed Roth IRA and technically access deals like this, but practically speaking, probably not going to happen. So if we take the fairness angle, I would say that it probably isn't. It isn't fair just because of access to deal flow. Yeah, I completely agree. I think technically speaking, it is possible, but reality, it's not. And There's a story about how Peter Thiel actually, he recounts this experience that he had where he went to Harvard and met Zuckerberg while he was starting Facebook. I mean, you and I, I actually worked one mile from Harvard, but still, nonetheless, like we're not going on Harvard's campus and meeting these like future Mark Zuckerbergs. So, but guys like Thiel can and these VCs can. And that's a different piece that you have, I guess, available to you when you're these investors. And the other piece too is you have to be an accredited investor, which a lot of people aren't. Even if you open a self-directed IRA and you found Facebook, let's just say somehow that was possible, you then also have to be an accredited investor. And so there's like all these different pieces that have to fit together. And yeah, it's hard. It's hard unless you're a guy like Teal. When we're talking about Teal's IRA and some strategies that might not work for everyday investors, talk to us about what an endowment fund is, who David Swenson was, and then take us through what an endowment model is. Okay. So 
I'll start with what an endowment is. It's a big pile of money and it's used to fund the operations or help fund the operations of a, usually a charitable organization or a not-for-profit. Like a lot of universities are going to have big endowment funds. Harvard is pretty famous for having the biggest of any university, but including the Ivy Leagues. It's Yale though. That's where Swenson was. And then Swenson in the past tense, he passed away earlier this year, unfortunately. Swenson was at Yale and he made a name for himself. He made a name for Yale and he even made a name for this approach to investing. It's known now just as the endowment model, but that's pioneered by Swenson's ideas, which were unconventional at the time. Now they're not so unconventional because everyone kind of tried to emulate his model because of its success. So it was in 85 that he took over Yale's endowment. And since then, up until he passed, the results of Yale's endowment have been phenomenal, like just ridiculously good compared to public stocks, compared to other endowments and institutional investors. So that success, and you know, it's interesting to tie it into that idea of outcomes. Like we started this conversation with you talking about following people instead of following processes. And this is, you can argue that Swenson has a process that you could try and replicate. And we'll talk more about how that's gone for other institutions in a second. But in a lot of ways, this is another example of outcome bias where everybody sees the success of Swenson and it's like, wow, Yale's endowment's just exploding because of the returns. And that outcome leads other institutions to want to to want to replicate the same thing. And that's exactly what has happened. So if you look around today, the big institutions like the pension funds, the university endowments, even sovereign wealth funds, they invest similar to what Swenson introduced. I haven't even talked really about what that is. But basically, he was big on active management and he was big on alternative asset classes. Like we're talking about hedge funds, private equity, private real estate, commodities, stuff like that. And back in 1985, most endowments were investing in like bonds, maybe stocks. He comes with this very unconventional approach, knocks it out of the park, and everybody wants to do the same thing. He's got a book, Swenson has got a book, Pioneering Portfolio Management, where he talks about a lot of these ideas. And so he explains the approach in there. It's diversifying across traditional asset classes like publicly traded stocks and bonds, and also alternative asset classes like we just mentioned. And so he talks about absolute return hedge funds, real estate, private equity, and venture capital as being some of the, some of the big ones. If you look on Yale's endowment website, they talk a lot about their process there too. And they explain that they use a combination of mean variance analysis. So that's like statistical optimization and market judgment to set the target asset class weights in their portfolio. And this is one of the keys to their approach. They then hire active managers, external active managers to manage each allocation. And that's another one of the things that's a little bit unconventional. And even now, there are competing endowment models. Like There's a model known as the Canada model, which is pioneered by the Canada Pension Plan. It's like Canada's version of social security. And they do something that's in some ways similar to Swenson's approach, but instead of hiring external managers, which tend to be much more expensive, they hire talent internally and try and develop it to do the same kind of stuff, but without paying the higher fees of external active managers. Anyway, a bit of a digression there. The current mix of Yale's endowment fund for fiscal year 2021, the, the target mix, they had 23.5% in absolute return hedge funds, 23.5% in venture capital, 17.5% in leveraged buyouts, which is like a private equity or a form of private equity, 11.75% in foreign equities, 9.5% in real estate, 
7.5% in bonds, 4.5% in natural resources, and 2.25% in US equities, public US equities, which is pretty crazy when you think about like the average investor, especially in the US, is going to have a huge weight toward US stocks. And since Scott or had Yale has 2.25%. So anyway, that type of allocation where you're spread across a whole bunch of different asset classes, that is the endowment model. One of the problems, I think, for individual investors with the success of Yale and with the adoption, broadly speaking, across institutions of that endowment model is that it's been really hard for other institutions to replicate Yale's results, even if they have been able to replicate or at least approximate the process. So again, it comes back to that question of how do you judge how do you judge an investment decision, really, or an investor's outcome? Do you judge it based on the outcome or do you judge it based on the process? And in Swenson's case, other investors trying to follow the same process. And I'm not saying Swenson was lucky. Like I don't want it to come across that way. I think there's probably luck involved, but he did pioneer a new way of investing. One of the challenges though, is when you start talking about those alternative asset classes, they don't have as much capacity as public stocks. And capacity is an issue because if everyone says, I want to do what Yale's doing, so they pile in to that strategy, to absolute return hedge funds, for example, the alpha opportunities start to be spread across more strategies, which decreases the overall alpha that's available to investors. So theoretically, it's not a model that everybody can follow. And when everyone started trying to follow it, I think it caused some issues. A few really good papers that have looked at this, a 2018 paper in the Journal of Investing called The Grand Experiment. And this was looking at state and municipal pension funds because they did a similar thing. They piled into alternative asset classes. And in this paper, they suggest the reason was the 2008 decline. Pension funds, all of a sudden, they had this big reduction in their assets, but they still have all of their pension liabilities. So it's like, okay, what do we do? How do we fund the shortfall? And the suggestion in the paper is that they saw alternatives as this opportunity to increase their expected returns without necessarily increasing risk. And it sounds pretty good and it worked for Swenson, so let's do it. And the question that this paper is asking is, how did that work out for them after they did the big reallocation into alternatives? And they found that states and municipalities did not get lower risk. They did not get higher returns. They ended up with higher fees. And so their conclusion in the paper is that the grand experiment has fallen short of its objectives. And there's another really good paper that looks at, instead of state municipal pension funds, they look at educational endowments, which is where obviously Swenson made his name. And it's, it's actually pretty crazy. If you look at the Ivy League endowment funds, their allocations to alternatives are massive. And the, the larger the university, there's a report that comes out every year called the, it's the Nakubo report. It's like an association that they all report to voluntarily and you can see what their allocations are. You can see what their returns have been. So if you look at those educational endowments, I think on average, they have 58%. The largest endowments have 58% on average in alternative investments. A lot. And they pay a lot in fees. Like That's one of the things that I don't know if I've emphasized enough. When you start getting into alternatives, your fees are going to be a lot higher than if you're just using public stocks and bonds. 2020 paper in the journal Portfolio Management that looked at, or the educational endowments, they actually looked at pension funds too. They tried to look at how have they done, but not just how have they done, how else could they have done if they just used public stocks and bonds, which again are cheaper to implement. And they actually found in this paper that the 
performance of the endowment funds and the pension funds could have been perfectly replicated using indexes of stocks and bonds, except that they underperformed. So because of all the alternatives and the higher fees, the pension funds trailed the market by 1% and endowments by 1.6%, which just reflects the higher fees that they're paying for the alternatives. So I mean, it's again, one of those things where we can look at Swenson and say like, wow, he did something really special and he created a model that a lot of other people wanted to follow. But if you ask how, how good is that model really out of sample, out of the Swenson sample, and it hasn't been so good. So again, if we relate that back to individual investors, should you try and replicate what Swenson has done or did? I would probably say no. And even the largest institutions that are trying to replicate what he was able to accomplish have not been able to do so. Now, one of the real big issues here is that in a sales pitch, someone that's sitting down with a high net worth investor, it's really easy to have this appeal to authority and say, well, look, here's what David Swenson did at Yale. And because you're wealthy, you, sir, sitting across the table from me, or ma'am, you should also be doing this because you also have a lot of wealth. I mean, it's not a good argument. An appeal to authority is never a good argument to do something. And again, if we look out, out of sample, how has this approach to investing done? Yeah, not so good. The other piece that I find really interesting in this whole conversation is that the largest institution, or it's a sovereign wealth fund, but the largest institutional investor in the world is Norway's sovereign wealth fund. And if you look at it, it looks a lot more like they just mostly own public stocks and bonds, and it's basically a, a giant index fund. So if you want to make an appeal to authority and ask, you know, what does the biggest institution in the world do? Well, they don't do the Swenson model. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree. 
expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. There's a lot of talk around and curiosity of what's going to happen to Berkshire Hathaway after Buffett and Munger are gone. You mentioned Swenson's unfortunately no longer with us. So how do you think Yale's endowment is going to continue on after Swenson? You mentioned Swenson's had great results, but a lot of other pension funds and endowments have struggled to replicate it. So without Swenson there, is Yale even going to be able to be what Yale used to be? So I've got a bit of a relationship with Ted Seides. He's got the Capital Allocators podcast. He was on the podcast. That's how I know Ted. Ted was close with David Swenson because his first job or one of his first jobs was working with him. Talking to Ted about Swenson, one of the things that you learn is that his ability to pick managers and all that stuff is exceptional, no doubt there. But his biggest skill was the ability to get everybody to buy into the strategy. His ability to communicate to stakeholders, because think about he's managing this endowment fund for this university that's got real implications for a bunch of people. And there are a lot of people relying on him. His greatest skill, as I understand it, was taking the investment concepts and the thesis of what they were doing inside of the endowment fund and communicating it to stakeholders in a way that got enough buy-in for them to stick with the strategy. I mean, one of the worst things that institutional investors do is fire losing managers. And we're going to talk more about that in one of the other questions that I, I know you want to talk about. Uh, but one of the worst things that they do is fire losing managers and hire winning managers. If a manager loses for the last three years, they get fired by many institutions. And there's been research on this. This is what happens on average. And they go and instead invest in managers that's won for the last three years. That strategy really doesn't work very well. Sticking with whatever you're doing, I think, is really important. And Swenson's ability to get everybody on board with that was exceptional. So with them gone, can they continue to do that? I mean, who knows, right? I have no idea. Maybe they can continue following the same process. Maybe there are predecessors in place that can continue executing on the strategy, but it's difficult to say. And if we think more generally about active management, reliance on an individual is one of the biggest. If we truly believe that a person is skilled in excess of what can be replicated through processes, then their passing or departure can be a big hit to, to the ability to, to execute. Back in the 90s and early 2000s, we didn't have access to information like we do today. So it was hard to replicate other super investors. You could do it. You could find filings from Buffett and other managers, but it was a lot harder than it is today. Today, you can just quickly and in five minutes or less, you can pull up the entire portfolio for these super managers and it's really easy to try and copy them. And we just talked about how it's not really replicable for other pension funds, endowments, even individual investors to copy kind of what Swenson's doing. But let's take that down to an individual fund manager or stock picker like Buffett or other type of mutual fund manager. Talk to us about why it's not a great strategy to just copy them blindly and why it doesn't typically end well for individual investors. Yeah. Well, you can copy a fund manager or you can invest in their fund, right? Either way, you're getting their picks. Again, I come back to outcomes. There have been a lot of cases of 
outcome-driven decisions by investors when you look in the historical data. High-flying fund managers are nothing new, really. It was in, back in the 1960s is when Fidelity launched their first aggressive growth mutual fund. And that's so you know, that's the first time that investors could en masse go and access the picks of a fund manager through fund that they were, that they were managing. And if you think back to that time, I mean, think back, I wasn't alive then, and probably most people listening were not either. But if you look at the, the history books back then, take it in, in like 1958, technology companies were skyrocketing in price. We had like IBM, there was Texas Instruments, and they were just dominating the headlines, dominating the stock market in terms of market cap. And there were lots of electronic companies at the time that were going public and seeing their prices skyrocket. I mean, it sounds a lot like last year and this year, if you think about it, really similar actually. New technologies are coming out and it's changing the way that the world is working and all these companies are going public and prices are going crazy. Uh, so that's 1958. That really started by 1968. Stock prices in the US, just measured by the Schiller cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, they are reaching levels that, so this is 68, they hadn't been seen, valuations that high hadn't been seen since 1929, preceding the big crash. And those valuations wouldn't be seen again until 1995 when we started to have the internet boom. So, pretty crazy, ser- seriously high valuations in 1968. And this is when approximately Fidelity is launching their, their Fidelity Capital Fund. And it was managed by Gerald Tsai Jr., 29-year-old guy. And again, you think about it, it's, it's interesting to look at what was happening then and overlay it on what the world looks like today and what's been happening. I mean, I made a video on this last year, I think I made it. I didn't name any fund managers, but everyone kind of speculated that it was really about Kathy Wood. Her outcome certainly inspired me to, to create the video. It wasn't necessarily about her because the story's not about her. The story's happened many times before. So anyway, so there's this guy, 29-year-old guy, he's managing this fund and he's killing it. He's timing his buys. He's getting it out of the market. He's not buy and hold, but he's a, basically a momentum investor. That concept didn't exist back then, but what he was doing was being a momentum investor with individual stocks. And again, it's companies like Polaroid, Xerox, LTV, which didn't last too long. So he, he crushed it for seven years. Seven years. And the whole time, investors were looking at this guy like, you can't lose, it's crazy, like, you got to get into the fund. And so the assets that he was managing just grew and grew and grew. And eventually, after seven years, he decides to leave Fidelity and start his own fund. So this is like he's got seven years of seriously impressive track record. And he starts the Manhattan Fund in 1966. And he raised $247 million in 1966. At the time, it was the largest raise for a fund that had happened to up to that date. Starts off 39% return in the first year. Pretty good. But then stopped doing so well and actually went on to be one of the worst performing funds in history. Now, one of the things that's really important here is thinking about when did investors get in? Like when he raised the Manhattan Fund, it's after his year, his seven year streak of really, really good performance. That's when most of the dollars arrive. You know, nobody really notices a fund manager that has one good year. Maybe they notice a bit. But seven years, everyone's okay. Like it's obvious. You got to get in. He's going to keep crushing it. But then when everybody does get in, the crushing stops. So bad outcome with the Manhattan Fund. I think an investor, if you'd stuck with the Manhattan Fund from the beginning over the next eight years, it lost 70%. Or you, you as the investor lost 70% of your value. So you know, not so good. 
definitely was not able to repeat his previous seven years of success. Around that same time, there was another one, a guy named Fred Carr, and he had the Enterprise Fund. Similar-ish idea, but he was investing in emerging growth stocks. So he invested in Kentucky Fried Chicken, Tonka were some of the big ones before they became sort of household names. One of the things when I was doing research on this guy that came up that it's just, it's funny, it's interesting. He had a TV in his bathroom. He was on the West Coast. So market opens, he's still getting ready in the morning because he's on the West Coast. So he's got a TV in his bathroom so he can get up to date on what's happening while he's getting ready for work. I just thought that was, this is in the sixties, right? Like crazy. So he delivered from 61 to 66, 17% per year, doubling the return of the US market over that period. Pretty good. Pretty good. But then in 1967, so he, he's got a good track record at this point, right? He's beaten the market. He's doubled the market return. But 1967, he returns 117%. Crazy. And then in 1968, he returns 44%. Again, pretty good return. So at this point, he manages over a billion dollars. Now, again, thinking about the flow of funds for Fred Carr's fund, most of those assets are arriving after the huge return in, in 67 and 68. So again, we have all these dollars chasing the past returns. 1969, he loses 25%. 1970, he loses 25%. And then he ends up leaving the fund, Fred Carr, the main guy, and the fund is taken over by a different manager with a different strategy. And I don't really know what happened after that. Again, similar to the size story, we can even look in more recent history. We don't have to go back to the 1960s to find stories like this. I just think it's interesting to go back that far and see some examples. But you fast forward to the 90s, and again, we're in a situation where a different type of technology company, like in this case, it's internet companies, are starting to explode and their prices are skyrocketing. There's tons of IPOs. Like it's very similar to then, to the 60s, and again to today when you think about it. There's sort of a couple of crazy stories from this period. I mean, I'm sure there are many more that I, that I didn't find when I was doing research on this, but the ones that I did find were, were crazy. So Garrett Von Wagener had an emerging growth fund that he launched in 1996. Didn't do much at first, up 27% in 96, down 20% in 97, up 8% in 98. Like you wouldn't notice. You wouldn't notice them. I think prior to that, though, he had a pretty good track record managing a small cap growth fund somewhere else. But anyway, so he's managing $189 million in December 1998. 99, he delivers a 291% return. Huge. Like that's crazy. 291%. And after he delivers that return, he gets $506 million of new flows from new investors that previously were not in. Well, maybe some of them were previous in the fund, but new dollars that he didn't have before. $506 million, keeping in mind that he had $189 million before the big return. Most of those dollars, and this part's crazy. This is recent enough that you can actually go in like something like Morningstar and look at the timing of the flows. So most of those $506 million of new funds came in November and December of that year literally after the return has happened, right at the end of the year. So pretty crazy. And I think it's also interesting to think about like Gerald Tsai, I don't know if I mentioned, he was portrayed in the media as much as investors perceived him as being cool and doing no wrong. The media was portraying him the same way. And Von Wagener, same kind of thing. He's different, right? He's in San Francisco. He's, he's kind of in tune with technology and how the internet's going to change, going to change the world. There was even a PBS frontline episode that I was able to find in 19, 1997 where the viewers were told that no one had the golden touch as much as Von Wagener. So it's crazy, right? It's like, he's got this big return. The media is gassing him up. After the big return in 1999, 
he lost 21% in 2000. Ouch, right? 60% in 2001. Compounding, right? These are compounding losses. And then another 64% in 2002. That hurts a lot. And he actually stuck with the fund until 2008. I think that it changed its name at one point, but he was still managing the same fund until 2008. If you had invested $100,000 from inception until his departure in 2008, you would have had as much as $625,000 in August of 2000. Like that's wild. And by February 2008 of your initial $100,000 investment, you'd have $35,000 left. Pretty bad, but listen to this though. That's 8% per year that you would have lost on average. And over that same time period, the US market gained uh, more than 8% per year. So that hurts. But most people didn't invest from inception. Most people invested, like I mentioned before, after he had that big run-up. So if you got in after the big year in 99, which is when most investors in the fund did put their dollars in, you would have lost an annualized almost 25%, 24.87% per year. Your $100,000 would have been worth $9,000 investing from the peak until his departure. It's crazy. And realistically, most investors wouldn't have probably held... I don't know. You'd have to have a lot of conviction in the manager to hold for that long. But if you did, that's the... Okay, I have one more of these anecdotal examples. I just find these fascinating. This one I love too, because the fund is still around. Like This guy is still in business. He's still managing a fund and it actually had a pretty good year in, in 2020. So this guy's name is Ryan Jacob. Bill, he's still around. So Ryan, if you're listening, uh, hello. So he took over this fund called the Kinetics Internet Fund in December 1997, returned 196% in 98. 216% in 99. And again, these are compounding returns. Like It's wild. And of course, as with the other examples, all of the dollars flow in after the big years of returns. His fund went from $22 million in 98 to $1.2 billion in 1999. Now, some of that increase comes from returns, but more than $700 million of the increase in the fund came from new flows into the fund. So that's a lot of new dollars coming in after the big returns. He left the Kinetics Fund and started his own fund in 2000 uh, called the Jacob Internet Fund. This is the fund that's still around and that he's still managing. And I mean, you got to kind of feel bad. A lot of it's a timing, bad timing. He starts a fund in 2000, loses 79%, and then loses 56% in 2001 and another 13% in 2002. If you invest $100,000 in his fund in 2000, it would have been worth 8000 by the end of 2002. Not so good. Now, the fact that he's stuck with it is, I think, very impressive. He did return 123% in 2020. But if you bought the fund when he left his, when he left Kinetics and started his own fund and held it since then, including the big year in 2020, you'd have an annualized 3.09% return while the US market delivered 7.04%. So, ouch, but got to respect the persistence. And maybe in 10 years, we're talking about how he's one of the best managers ever. And it's just a rough start. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> Those were anecdotes. Again, I just find them fascinating. And I find the similarities between the 60s, the 90s, and today to be pretty staggering. One of the other things that I think is important is to look at broader sets of data and ideally published research, which I have some of. So there's a 2017 paper in the Journal of Portfolio Management titled, Does Past Performance Matter in Investment Manager Selection? And they asked, how does performance chasing behavior affect investment returns? And so what they did, and I briefly referenced this earlier in our conversation, what they did is they built a winner strategy that invests in an equal weighted portfolio of mutual funds with top decile performance against their prospectus benchmark for the trailing three years. They set the research up this way based on a different paper that 
showed empirically that this is how institutions do it. They have this basically three-year cycle where they fire losers and hire winners. And this paper is asking, how does that affect performance, at least in the universe of a mutual fund? So they've got a winner strategy that invests in the best performing funds. They've got a median strategy that invests in the 45th to 55th percentile funds. And they've got a loser strategy that invests in the worst performing funds. And they rebalance each of these portfolios monthly for 36 months, and then they reconstitute them for the next three-year cycle based on the same methodology. Now, the results are like, they're crazy. They found that the average benchmark adjusted return for the loser strategy, this is investing in the worst performing funds for the previous period. The losing strategy beats the winner strategy by 2.28% per year, and it beats the median strategy by 1.32% per year. So by investing in the worst performing funds, you beat the best performing funds by 2.28% per year in their analysis. They looked at this on just a pure returns basis, but they also looked at the Sharpe ratios. They looked at CAPM alpha. That's like excess risk adjusted returns. They looked at Carhartt four-factor alpha. And I know we'll talk about factors in a bit, so that might make more sense in a second, but it's basically adjusting for multiple risks, not just market risk, and seeing what the excess risk adjusted return looks like. And the loser strategy outperforms on all of those different performance metrics. So it's like, that's pretty crazy. Like on average, not we talked about some extreme anecdotes, which I think are interesting and useful for people to think about, but maybe not that meaningful in terms of making a decision. But now we're talking about a strategy that looks at all of the funds in the US market, all the mutual funds, and picks winners or losers. And if you pick the winners, on average, you're losing. So the anecdotes, I guess, are backed up by that aggregated data. I just want to briefly touch on some of the reasons why this might happen. There's a 2016 paper, Does Scale Impact Skill? And they find that the size of the fund increases. I think Buffett's talked about this too. As the size of the fund increases, it becomes increasingly difficult for the manager to generate alpha. This paper finds that for an average fund in the cross-section that doubles its size in one year, its alpha drops by around 20 basis points per year. It's a pretty significant there's a theoretical paper that tries to explain why this might be happening or one of the reasons that, that it might be happening. The 2005 paper, it's one of my favorite finance papers, I think. It's known as the Burke and Green paper. It's by Jonathan Burke and Richard Green. It's titled Mutual Fund Flows and Performance in Rational Markets. And they propose this rational equilibrium model where there's dispersion in active manager skill. So some managers are skilled, some managers are unskilled. And investors are competing to allocate their capital to the most skilled managers. And in their model, active managers have decreasing returns to scale. So if you think about it, in their model, investors are going to, and it's a reflection of reality, as we've just talked about, investors are going to supply more capital to managers who have delivered good performance. No surprise there. But when they do that, they drive down the ability of those managers to generate excess returns because of the fund's increasing size and their decreasing returns to scale. Now, so in their model, and this is the part that's just fascinating when you think about it, in their model, investors don't benefit from the skill of managers, but managers benefit tremendously from their own skill because a more skilled manager has more capacity to absorb assets before the benefits of their skill are diminished. So it's a capacity issue on the manager's end where their skill allows them to manage more assets before investors start to say, hey, like you're not actually generating good performance anymore. So from that perspective, skilled managers don't benefit investors, but they benefit themselves by having a greater capacity to manage assets, which of course they're charging, they're charging fees on. 
So even if you can find a skilled manager, I guess the trick is investing in them before everybody else realizes that they're skilled, which makes it even more challenging to execute. And then get out when everybody else realizes it, right? When all that other money flows in. That's exactly right. Because when, when all that money flows in, like when, when everybody's in there and if skill is zero, you don't necessarily expect negative returns. Although we've, we saw in some of those examples that that's what you get, but you'd expect just a random outcome. Not, not necessarily good or, good or bad. I think one of the other issues in there that I didn't touch on is that in those anecdotes we talked about at the beginning of this piece, in all of those cases, the managers were probably getting lucky. Maybe they were really smart. I'm sure they are really smart people. None of this is a knock on the intelligence of managers. It's just a, it's a very competitive thing that they're trying to accomplish. But the other thing with those anecdotes, and it could be true more generally, I don't know if I've seen research on this, but in those anecdotes, they were investing in high-flying, high-priced companies. And if we just take, separate that out and forget about the managers for a sec, and just think about how have investors done when they've invested in the highest priced companies in the market, they've done really badly. Investing in growth stocks on average underperforms the market and underperforms investing in value stocks. And this is talking about investing in the most extreme growth stocks in those examples that we gave. So from that perspective, unless the manager's exceptionally skilled, there shouldn't be any surprise that they're underperforming in the end. As you were talking about Ryan Jacob, I hadn't heard of him. So I did a quick Google search. And the first thing that comes up is actually really fascinating to me because it says Ryan is the chief portfolio manager for the Jacob Forward ETF since the inception in 2021. And I think that's fascinating because that's the first thing that comes up. But you just told us the story from the 90s and the early 2000s of how this guy's been managing money from all the way back then. But when you, the first thing you Google in his name is, oh, since the inception of 2021. And there's this survivorship bias, I think that's like perfectly illustrated with that people don't even think about. I got to say, like, I know I'm using him as an example of why chasing fund managers is not a good thing to do, but I seriously respect the fact that he's been doing this since then and that he's lived through that and he's still managing a similar strategy. It's like, that's, that's impressive, truly. Well, the third link down says fund manager Ryan Jacob takes on Kathy Wood's ARC fund. You know, it's interesting. It's really interesting. And to talk about the size, you mentioned Buffett. He does. He has a quote that says if he had a million dollar fund, he guarantees that he could return 50% a year every year with that size fund. That just illustrates that size really is a limiting piece. But I think the other piece too is these funds have a lot of... We talked about the inflows and how the size hurts, but there's also the outflows. When things start to struggle, managers are forced to sell out of positions that maybe have gone on to do great things, but because they were forced to sell, that hurts as well. So there's a lot of these negative features of funds that they have to deal with that we don't have to as individual managers. That's a good point. In the Fred Carr example, they had a lot of issues. And it makes me think a little bit about Kathy Wood too. They had a lot of issues where they were the largest holders of small companies. When they did start to have outflows, the negative returns were exacerbated by the fact that they had to sell these relatively illiquid positions. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely valid. I agree. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. 
I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. A very common piece of advice or strategy that I've heard people talking about lately, and it's mostly in the FIRE community, which is financial independence, retire early for those who don't know, Touts buying high dividend yielding stocks as a great strategy. Walk us through the potential pitfalls and dangers of investing in high dividend yielding stocks outside of just individual stock picking being difficult in and of itself. Okay. So I don't even think I have to pick on dividend investing, at least to start to answer the question. If we think about value investing, just low priced, low priced stuff. That like you say high yield. Another way of saying high yield is low price, because if you take dividends, hold them constant, a lower priced dividend stock with the same dollar dividend is going to have a higher yield. So I think high yield is another way of saying low price. In the case of high yield, we're just focusing only on dividends, which has its own problems, which I'll probably touch on as well. Now, if we just use value investing for a second and forget about the dividend filter, the, the problem with looking at prices or yields, doesn't matter. I mean, we can talk about it. They're somewhat interchangeable. If you just look at the lowest price stocks, you're getting one of two things. And it's really hard to know which one of the two things that you're getting. You're either getting a high discount rate. I'll back up for a second. If you're buying a stock, you're buying discounted future cash flows. Fundamentally, that is what you're purchasing. If you're paying a low price for a stock, you're either paying a low price based on a high discount rate, meaning that it's a very risky stock, which is not necessarily a bad thing. 
You might even look for stocks with the highest discount rates because you want higher expected returns. But the problem with just looking at prices is that you might be getting stocks with high discount rates, or you might be getting stocks with low expected cash flows. They don't really want to buy the stocks with low expected cash flows. So it's really hard to say if you're just looking at price or just looking at yield, uh, dividend yield, it's really hard to say if you're buying something with a high discount rate, which maybe isn't so bad, or if you're just buying a junk stock, like literally just a bad company and it's got a low price because it's not going to produce future cash flows and you therefore don't really want to, don't really want to own it. So whether we're talking about high yield or value, value only, I think that's a major problem. One of the ways to deal with this, and this is something that Buffett very impressively pioneered before anybody else knew to do it and before the academic literature had figured this out, which is recently, like it's in the last sort of, we're in 2021, maybe the last 10 years or so where this idea of quality investing or controlling for profitability which is something that Buffett was doing for a long time. It's only recently that academia has said, you know, hey, look at this profitability thing or this quality thing. If we control for that, it fixes the problem with value. Because if you control for cash flows, if you say, let's just find companies that we know have strong cash flows, and you can do that by looking at one example, gross profitability. If you take gross profitability, it ends up being actually a pretty good predictor of future profitability. A company that's currently profitable tends to continue to be profitable. So if we just take those companies and then sort them by price, now you've got low-priced companies that we know have strong cash flows. So you've got a much better idea that you're picking companies with a high discount rate. Their prices are low because of that, rather than their, their prices being low because they've got weak profitability. So we use with my firm, we generally take the approach of index investing, but we have some filters in place for low prices and for robust profitability and then a couple of other things. We don't call it quality. Other companies like MSCI has uh, quality indexes and they're doing something very similar. They're just looking at different metrics. Like they're using a combination of return on equity, leverage, and, and earnings variability. But it's getting to the same, generally speaking, place where we're saying, uh, let's control for the quality of the company so that we're not buying cheap stocks because they're drunk. We're buying cheap stocks because they've got high discount rates and therefore higher expected returns, which is good. To speak to dividend stocks, Dividends are not returns. And I think that's something that is often a challenge for people who have abided by the philosophy of dividend investing. When you receive a dividend, your capital has to reduce by the amount of the dividend that is distributed to you. Now, people are going to say, well, no, I, I own dividend stocks and I get dividends and the price doesn't go down by the same amount. Of course it doesn't. But that's because there's massive amounts of noise in prices every day. If you watch the account and say, oh, well, I got a dividend and the price went up, that doesn't mean that what I just said isn't true. When a company distributes cash, the value of its capital is reducing by the amount that it distributed. So on dividend distribution, you're getting a net zero, all else equal, holding all else constant. You're getting a net zero return before tax, and you might be paying tax on the dividend, which, which makes it even worse. Now, there's a whole other problem with dividends. We talked about profitability. Like We want to control for profitability if we're going to invest in low price stocks. Some people might have been listening to that and saying, okay, if I'm investing in high yield, the dividends are telling me something about profitability. So I am doing that. I'm controlling for profitability by looking at high dividends. The challenge with that is that a dividend can be faked. And I don't mean faked in the sense that you're not getting real cash, but it can be faked in the sense that the cash that you're receiving as a dividend is not reflective of underlying profitability. 
Now I know like people who are well-versed in dividend investing, they are looking at stuff like this. Like they are looking at payout ratios and growth rates and profitability and, and reinvestments and all that stuff. So if you're looking at all that stuff, great. I just, I don't think you need to constrain yourself to only dividend companies. I want to walk through a quick example though. So there's this theory of dividend irrelevance. And I know a lot of people that believe in dividend investing are going to be shaking their heads saying that the, the-, the theory is BS. Like any theory, it's not a reflection of perfect reflection of reality. I think it's a useful model. And I'm just going to talk through why I think it's a, a useful model. Valuation is what drives stock returns. If you buy cheap company, if you buy cheap cash flows, you've got higher expected returns. That's a truth in the market, unless you're investing in game stock. And we'll, we'll talk maybe about that later. So in this 1961 paper, Miller and Medigliani, they introduced this concept of dividend irrelevance. Their objective in the paper was to show that from a theoretical perspective, investors should not be concerned with dividend policy given investment policy. And that's important. If, if you know what investments a company wants to make, then dividend policy is irrelevant to the valuation of, of shares. Today, there are ways to estimate future investment. It turns out that last year's growth in assets is a pretty good predictor of next year's growth in assets. So we don't know, we don't have perfect foresight on, on investment policy, but we have a pretty good proxy for it. Given investment policy, and this is the important part, given investment policy, dividend policy becomes a financing decision. I'm going to talk through an example that, that hopefully helps people see why, what I meant by dividends potentially being fake. You have profits. You can use profits to pay dividends, or you can use profits to invest in projects. You can do, you can do either one. If profits are used to pay dividends, given the plan to invest in projects, remember we said holding investment policy constant, the capital for the projects that you want to complete will need to be raised by other means. In my example, I'm going to use the issuance of new shares. So based on this dividend policy, given investment policy is a financing decision. And from the perspective of the investor invest company, the financing decision at the corporate level just implies a change in the distribution of how you're receiving your total return. So if we take Sample Co, they've got $200,000 in cash, they've got $800,000 in assets at market value, and they've got no debt. 100,000 shares outstanding in my example. So each share is worth $10. They've got investment opportunities, but they also know that their investors want to receive their usual $2 dividend. So they pay it. They pay the dividend. They spend their $200,000 of cash from their profits from the previous year. And then they raise $200,000 in new equity to finance the investments that they had planned to make. So given investment policy, the newly issued shares, are, they're going to dilute the ownership of the future profits for the previous shareholders. But the holders of the previous shares, they also receive the dividend compensating them for the diluted value. So if you're a shareholder of this stock before the dividend was paid, you have $2 in cash from your dividend, and you've got an $8 share because the dividend has to reduce the amount of capital that you have. And the new shares needed to raise the $200,000 of capital for investment are issued at $8 per share based on the new lower valuation after the dividend was distributed. So there are 25,000 new shares issued. This company's now paid a dividend. It's got $200,000 of cash to invest. It's got $800,000 in assets at market value, and it's got no debt. And there are 125,000 shares outstanding instead of the original 100,000, the value per share has dropped to $8 after the dividend was paid. Now, the company looks exactly the same. And as the shareholder, if you owned four shares in the company, your ownership of its future profits has dropped because there was a dilution from the equity issuance. But you could take your $8 in dividends that you received and purchase another share, which takes your ownership of future profits back to its previous level. 
Now, another thing I know some dividend investors believe is that you, the investor, are better at allocating your capital than the company, and therefore you might want to take those dividends that you received and invest them in something else. Sure, valid, fine. But in my example, you reinvest them in the company, or you you could choose to reinvest in the company. I guess. Now, if they had not paid the dividend and just financed the project internally with their profits instead of paying the dividend, you, the investor, would have received no dividends. You would have been left with four shares valued at $10 each, and your entitlement to future profits would have remained the same. In both cases, the investor ends up in the exact same place. It's just different. How their total return was distributed to them is a little bit different, but the return is the same. So whether the company paid a dividend or not didn't actually matter to the expected return. Now, if we look at current theory in asset pricing, valuation theory suggests that the discounted profits, the discounted value of expected profits minus expected investment is how people value shares. And there's, there's lots of literature on, on that. We can estimate both. We can estimate gross profitability. Like I mentioned before, we can estimate expected investment using the current book value of assets. So what I would argue is that investors looking for higher expected returns rather than looking at high dividend yielding stocks, they should be looking at companies with robust profitability that invest conservatively and trade at a low valuation. And it's like, you might get there using high dividend stocks, but you're going to end up with a more concentrated portfolio. And you might end up with companies that don't actually have robust profitability. They just look like they do because they're paying dividends. But if you just go directly to the source and say, give me profitable companies that invest conservatively and have low prices, that to me makes a lot more sense than the sort of, you maybe get partway there using a high dividend yield, but it's not going to be as reliable. One of the things that I've been fascinated with lately is how successful people and great thinkers like yourself think and learn. It can be a bit meta, but I love learning about how to learn and how to learn the right way. So break down what the Feynman technique is, and then also give us insight on how you personally learn. Clearly, you know a lot about all these different topics we've talked about today. I want to know how, if you didn't know something, how are you going about learning it? And then also break down the Feynman technique for us. So I'm going to be honest, I had to Google the Feynman technique when I saw you wanted to talk about it. But I did, I Googled it. And there are a few different sort of iterations of how people interpreted it. I would summarize it as, I like it actually, when I read it, it resonated with me. You choose a topic to learn and you learn everything that you possibly can about it through reading and, and whatever other, other means. And then you teach it to someone else who has no baseline knowledge of the topic. And then when I Googled this, some of the people said, you know, teach it to someone at a sixth grade level. Other people said, I think Feynman himself said, if you can't teach it to a freshman, you don't understand. But anyway, teach it to someone who doesn't have a baseline knowledge of the topic that you're trying to learn about. Through explaining it to them, you're going to identify gaps in your own explanation. Because if you can't explain it to the sixth grader or the freshman, then you don't understand it yourself. So you go back to the source material, fill in the gaps, simplify your explanation, and repeat that process. Now, I mentioned I really liked this when I read it. So I mean, I guess thank you for teaching me this or telling me that it existed. I think I'd heard about it before, but I'd never taken the time to, to read what it, was, what it was all about. Now, it resonated with me, I think, because it's pretty similar to what I do when I want to learn about something. So for all of those topics that we just talked about, those are all things that at a point in time, I didn't know anything about. But you know, I want to make YouTube videos and on my podcast, I've got to have things to, to talk about that are, well, things that I haven't talked about previously. So I have to go and learn new stuff. 
So what I do, I end up with a ton of browser tabs open on my computer, like just an embarrassing amount. Usually a few books. I only have two books on my desk right now, but if I'm going deep in a topic, I'll sometimes have like a stack of four or five books with sticky notes throughout them and folded pages and all that stuff. And then podcast episodes are another big one. So in many cases, what I'll do is I'll take those books that I'm reading and I'll find five podcast episodes that author has done covering those topics. And I'll listen to those and then go back and read sections of the book again that I didn't fully understand the first time. The other thing that's a little bit unique, and you can probably relate to this, Robert, is that I'm lucky in the sense that if I'm reading a book and I'm really interested in the topic, but maybe something's not quite sticking or I'm missing something, what I'll often end up doing is contacting them and saying like, hey, listen, I have this podcast and this many people listen to it. Would you be interested in coming on? And most of the time, at least in my experience, people are more than happy to. And so any of those questions that I still have that I haven't been able to figure out from reading their stuff or from listening to other podcasts, I just get to ask them, which is a privilege, I think. It does help a lot in the process. So I'll sit with that information for like, depending on the topic. You know, if it's about valuation or active managers, stuff like that is not so hard. But like one of the other times that I was on your podcast, we talked about quantitative easing, which when I started diving into was like, that was new ground for me. I mean, it was way outside of most of the stuff that I'd learned previously. I mean, I did CFA, which has some economics in it, but nothing like that. So for that one, it was like, I think it was two months that I was just like in books and podcasts and talking to people who are experts on that. I think we actually had three or four podcast guests in those two months that were invited on because I was trying to figure that topic out. They had uh, various levels of expertise on the stuff I was trying to figure out. So anyway, I do all that learning and then I try to write about it. Before I do a video or a podcast episode, I always write it. I write down my notes. And once I've done that, I'll usually try and cut down fluff and stuff that doesn't really matter until it gets to a point where I can read it and feel like other people will probably understand it. And I always think back to my when I finished university with my engineering degree, and I literally knew nothing about finance or investment or anything. I try to think back to that guy, like, would he understand this? And that's one of the benchmarks that I use. And then, and again, this is a privilege and my ability to learn. I'll release it as a podcast episode or a YouTube video. Lately, it's been more podcast episodes because they're a lot less work than, than YouTube videos. But either way, I take my understanding of this topic and I just give it out to the world. And comments and questions that I get from people, that is probably, at least as a finishing touch to learn a topic, that is where any remaining gaps are filled in. And it's, it's a pretty exciting experience because it's like there are so many things that like, okay, I read four books, listen to all these podcasts and whatever, whatever. And then if someone asks a question, it's like, wow, I didn't think of that. And that really fills in the gaps. So it's kind of like crowdsourcing, filling in little gaps that you didn't previously understand. So anyway, when I read the, the Feynman technique, it was a lot kind of like what I do anyway. So I guess that's why it uh, resonated with me. Yeah, it's almost the exact same for me, except I recently made the transition from physical books to ebooks. So I just whip up my iPad and start reading there. I'm a huge fan of physical books. I have like 300 plus downstairs in my little personal library, but I've been really, really, really liking Kindles lately, ebooks. And so that's the only change that I have that I think is a little bit different from our processes. But other than that, more or less the exact same. Now, I'm curious do you read the books cover to cover or do you go and look for specific information? 
Depends on the topic. If it's something that I know a lot about already, then I'll skip to the specific section that I'm trying to learn about. But like to use quantitative easing as the example, because that was like, personally, that was, it was a big thing. Like I think back in my life, like hard things that I've done, you know, when I was playing NCAA basketball, training and getting up in the morning and all that stuff, like that was a hard thing. Doing the CFA when I was working full time, that was a hard thing. It sounds ridiculous to say it, but like learning about quantitative easing, to the extent that I could speak about it, that was a really hard thing. So when I did QE, because it was something that I didn't know much about, if I had a book on that, I was reading it cover to cover because there were so many little details that I just didn't know about. And it's crazy how the gaps slowly fill in. That's one of the other things about learning you know, that I think is important for people to understand is that it's painful. I just talked about that process and it maybe sounds fun and exciting or whatever, but it's uncomfortable. Our bodies are not programmed to sit down and learn. And we are programmed to conserve the Kahneman idea of system one and system two brain. And your system one is the automatic thinking. Your system two is when you really sit down and turn your brain on and engage it. We're designed to avoid engaging our system two brains because it uses way more energy than system one. So to sit down and learn a new thing, it's like evolutionarily something that we're not really geared to do. And I feel it. like It's stressful. It's uncomfortable. I'd rather be doing other stuff. The outcomes are nice. Like Knowing about stuff is cool. Being able to talk about stuff, especially when people are going to listen and give feedback, that's cool. But learning is not comfortable. Like I mentioned CFA. That was finishing. It was amazing. Finishing level three of CFA was, felt so good. But the three years that I was lived in a small apartment then, so I'd be in coffee shops or like in my office until 9 p.m. or whatever. That was awful. Like that was one of the worst experiences of my life. Going through all those quantitative easing books, did you find any that stood out? If somebody's listening and he's like, oh, I want to, you know, he or she is like, I really want to learn about quantitative easing. Clearly, Ben spent a lot of time reading it. What book should I read? Is there any that really stuck out to you? So Cullen Roche has a book, Pragmatic Capitalism is the title of his book. He's also got a paper though, and the paper might even be better than the book because the book covers other subjects as well. I think the paper is just called Understanding the Modern Monetary System. He takes a very practical approach. Like One of the challenges when you start trying to learn about quantitative easing is that a lot of the research is from economists at the Fed or economists, monetary economists that are using a very technical language and they're talking about everything in theoretical terms. But one of the things that was great about Cullen's stuff is that he takes, well, I guess like the book suggests, he takes a very pragmatic, practical approach to what's actually happening. And he talks about, I think it was, it might've been even been on the We Study Billionaires podcast that I heard Cullen talk about this, but his experience was that he had a friend whose dad, or maybe it was, was the friend itself, I can't remember, but so he knew somebody that was at Japan Central Bank and they'd been doing QE for a long time. And so Cullen called him up and was just like, what's actually going on here? And they were able to talk him through what was happening. And for him, that made the practical aspects a lot easier to understand. And then when you read his stuff, it's like, oh, okay, that's what's actually happening here. And like Colin's big thing was calling, well, calling the fact that there wouldn't be inflation when Q was happening after 2008. And everyone was panicking about inflation. And Colin's like, no, 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 here's what's actually happening. And this is why we shouldn't expect inflation. And we didn't get it. But anyway, so that was a bit of a win for him, but also to his way of thinking. And then there's a woman named Frances Coppola. She's in the UK, I believe. Similarly, she has experience working in banks. And then she's also got a lot of theoretical economics knowledge. And between those two things, she's able to communicate again. Here's what the economic theory says, but here's what's actually happening. And you take those two things together. 
She's got a book called, I think it's called The People's QE. She's arguing for a slightly different approach to QE, but in that argument, she does a, a really good job of explaining what's actually happening. Did your new understanding of QE change how you viewed Bitcoin? Did you have one opinion of Bitcoin going into QE and then maybe have a different opinion of Bitcoin coming out of QE? And if not, that's okay. I'm just kind of curious how, if and how that changed. Not really. I mean, the one of the things when you start reading about, and it's not just QE, but just how the monetary system works is that the quantity of money, which is one of the, the, the best arguments, most entrenched arguments that I hear for Bitcoin is the fixed supply argument. When you start digging into how the monetary system works, at least my interpretation of it is you start to understand that having a fixed money supply is not actually a good thing. And it's not a superior feature of Bitcoin or of gold. In fact, the money supply is a little bit more fluid, is not such a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing. I think the crisis that we just lived through is an example of why it's a good thing to have some elasticity in the supply of money. So, I mean, I tried recently with a, someone that I know who's very much into Bitcoin and has been from the early days. We had a, a long conversation and we went back and forth over email afterwards. I was really trying to get it. I was really trying to get, like, this guy's a smart guy. And I know lots of smart people who are just so entrenched in the idea of, of Bitcoin, what I came out of that with is an understanding. And you can tell me if I'm wrong here or if you think I'm wrong. But my understanding from that conversation was that the strongest argument for Bitcoin is the idea that we should be on a fixed supply currency. And if that is going to be the case, Bitcoin is the best solution to accomplish it. And from a technological perspective, I can't disagree. I think it is a very elegant technology. The challenge that I have is that I don't agree with that fundamental piece, which is that we need a fixed supply currency. And if you disagree on that, like if you say, well, no, we don't actually need that, then you shouldn't expect the value to increase in the way that the, many of the proponents of Bitcoin believe. What do you think about that? I think that I don't understand Bitcoin enough to have arguments for or against it, but I think that I have belief in some of the people that like the gentleman you spoke to, which I don't know necessarily who it is, but I have people like that in my life as well that I think are very smart, that are very entrenched in Bitcoin. And I believe in them more than anything. And so I figure at least having a small allocation for me is worth it. And if it works out, great. And if it doesn't, you know, I had just a very small allocation and, and I'm okay with that. And I do have plans to eventually study that more. But in today's world, there's so many different things that we can study. I have so many things that I need to study. I'm in real estate, stocks, building a business, Bitcoin. It's like, which rabbit hole do I fall down? And I just haven't gotten to the Bitcoin rabbit hole yet. The University of Chicago had a panel with... Uh, oh, I'm not going to remember everybody's name. It was David Booth, who's the founder of a huge asset manager. Gene Fama, who's like one of the fathers of modern finance. Cliff Asness, Who's the he, he runs AQR, which is a massive hedge fund type firm that does quantitative strategies, all University of Chicago people. And then there was Kaplan, I can't remember this, his first name, was running the panel. But one of the things they talked about was Bitcoin. And Cliff Asnes, who I've got a tremendous amount of respect for, and he's done tons of amazing research in financial economics, he said something similar to you, where, and similar to me too, where it's like, you know, I, he hasn't gone down the rabbit hole yet to figure it out for himself. And he says, full disclosure, this is not a good way to make a decision or to think about something. But he says, based on the people that are involved with it, I wouldn't touch it. That's funny. So he goes the opposite way of me, huh? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Same way of making the decision, but opposite conclusion. Yeah, that's interesting. And I do, I guess one of my concerns is that 
there's people that I do think are very smart that believe in it, but then I also get concerned that some people are so entrenched in it that they can't change their mind now. And they have this bias where they fall super victim to confirmation bias. And I'm not saying this is happening to everybody, but I'm just concerned that that could be a case for a lot of Bitcoin bulls out there. And so that's one of the things I'm trying to keep an eye out for. But when I look for people that make arguments against it and people that make arguments for it, I tend to agree, I think, a little bit more on the side for it. But again, super small. It's really the way to manage your risk is position sizing. And so that's pretty much how I've handled it. I said that in, I did a video before when Bitcoin is probably at 4,000 or maybe even less. I did a video trying to give an overview of what it is. And I said in that video why I probably wouldn't invest in it. I kind of said, if it's a currency, like you don't invest in currencies because they have zero expected return. And likewise, if it's more like gold, then I don't think gold has a positive expected return either. So I probably wouldn't touch this thing. But I did say, if you are going to touch it, maybe do it based on capitalization weights, like Bitcoin's total capitalization relative to the stock market and size your position position that way. I don't think it's crazy to do that. I mean, I wouldn't go all in on it. I don't own any, and I don't plan to. But I think having a small position isn't crazy at all. There's two economists, uh, Tyler Cowen, who's got a podcast called Conversations with Tyler, and John Cochran. He's at University of Chicago. Uh, I can't remember where Tyler Cowen is, possibly Stanford. Both very well-spoken, good communicators. John Cochran's also got a podcast, actually, but it's not updated regularly. But anyway, they both have really good criticisms of Bitcoin that are worth checking out. And I actually have John Cochran coming up on my podcast in the next few months. And that's one of the things that I'm most excited to, to ask him about is why he's so he's a Bitcoin bear. It's beyond being a bear. Like He just thinks it's silly. I'm very much looking forward to my conversation with him. But both of them have published uh, blog posts on their thoughts. So they're worth checking out. Yeah, I'll check them both out myself. I'll put links to them both in the show notes and, and I'll definitely check out your episode with him when it goes live. Really one of the biggest, most loud people that I've heard bear against it is Peter Schiff. And when I see his arguments on Twitter, I just I really just don't really like it and I don't really agree with what he's saying. I'm not saying I wouldn't agree with a different bear, but for him, he just seems to be the loudest from what I've seen. And so just hasn't been overly strong yet. But I guess we'll see and I'll have to dive a little bit deeper myself and make the decision. Well, Ben, as always, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've learned a lot and I know the audience is going to as well. I think it's a great idea for everyone listening to follow you. So where is the best place they can go to find you, follow you, learn more from you? Uh, Well, I've got my Common Sense Investing YouTube channel, but it's I haven't been updating it. I need to get back to making videos. I've even got in my new house here, I've got a, if you can't see it, it's out of frame, but I've got a little studio set up. I just, anyway, so you can follow me there, but just, it's a little stale right now. I've got a podcast called The Rational Reminder. The, the YouTube channel is called Common Sense Investing. I've got a podcast called The Rational Reminder. That is weekly and it's been weekly ever since it started and we have no intentions of, of stopping that cadence. It is on YouTube with video as well as being on all the podcast platforms. So you can check me out there. That's where I'm most active right now. And I don't know, like, Twitter and stuff, but I don't really tweet. So, I'll put a link to all the different resources Ben just mentioned for him personally in the show notes below. I'll put some links to other stuff that we talked about throughout the show, books and other resources you can dive into as well in the show notes below for anybody that's interested. Ben, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks a lot, Robert. It was great. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. 
Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.